The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Those of you that are booing, Sam worked really hard on worship all week. That is not nice. Sam, you did a great job, man. You did a great job. We'll explain all this mess in a minute. <clears throat> hey, uh, how are you guys doing this morning? Hey, I have some words to share that I've been excited to share for two months, and that is grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Ephesians. We're going to get back in there after a couple of months of uh, taking on some stuff that we just needed to do. I'll cover some of that in just a minute. Um, while you're there, I need you to tune in really nice and uh, listen carefully because we have a ton of announcements today. And uh, if you know me at all, you know that I hate announcements. And so I'm literally just going to blitz through these really fast. Um, all the information that you need for these is either at the information table on the way out where you can stop by and talk to those nice ladies and they'll be sure to help you out. Or go to our website at heritagefellowship.net, and there's information there. So here's what they are. Uh, number one, membership application reminders. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know that at Heritage, we unrolled about two weeks ago a new um, kind of membership program here at Heritage Christian Fellowship. If that's a surprise or new to you, then you need to go back and listen to a teaching about two weeks ago called A Healthy Church Has Healthy Members, and all that's laid out and explained there. Um, but we hand it out, and we have more available here, if you'd like, the, the paperwork to be able to do that, to, to join the formal, if you will, covenant membership here at Heritage Christian Fellowship. And uh, I want to remind you guys that if you're doing that, if you're in um, and, and you're looking to, to actually take part of that process, we want to get that rolling as soon as we can. So the sooner you get that filled out and back to us. It would help us with databases and giving the elders who they're kind of assigned to shepherd and, and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and I know a congregation tends to take after its leadership and I have yet to fill mine out either. So, uh, I know that, uh, um, that there's a lot of us that are doing that. So it's just a good reminder. If you could take advantage of that and help us out with that, that would be fantastic. If you need another one, grab one at the table on the way back. If you don't know what I'm talking about, maybe grab one anyway, and then go home and listen to that teaching. There's no games or anything on today. So don't worry about that. You can just, just take in church twice. Um, and can I just say too, um, as your pastor, some of the stuff that we've had to work through over the last month is very detail-oriented, in many ways very boring, sometimes controversial, and, and just, it, it's a lot of stuff to take in over the last month. It's stuff we've been working on for two years, some of this kind of stuff. And can I just say, I, like, I am so thankful and proud of this church for the way that you guys kind of rolled with some of that, understood, trusted us, and listened to what we've had to say. Um, it's just been super, super, um, just a blessing uh, to interact with you following some of these things. The excitement many of you have for the direction that we're going has just been really encouraging and confirmation to us as well. And so I just want to say I love you guys and thank you for rolling with us on that. Um, uh, continuing, flip side of 50 group, dashing through the snow. They're going up to Diamond Lake to uh, have a good time. I think that's uh, February 20th. Um, also, they're doing a lunch next Sunday on the 14th. Uh, a little Valentine's Day lunch. If uh, You can take your wife to a cheap meal probably that way. So uh, do that. At Wild River. Oh, it's at Wild River. They're not that cheap, but they're good. Um, 
Man Camp 2016. Men, I want you guys to come with me this year. Um, our church is playing a pretty uh, big role in the Acts 29 Northwest Network's uh, Man Camp this year at Washington Family Ranch, April 1st through the 3rd. Um, it's 125 a person. If you sign up in February, it goes up to 145 come March. So make sure you sign up soon. Uh, Sam and the gang are going to be the worship band for that entire weekend, and uh, we're going to be really playing a big role and just having a great time uh, with an Acts 29 pack pastor from Reno, Nevada, who's going to be teaching through the book of Titus. It's going to be a rich time, and that is the nicest camp you will ever see in your life. Everything from go-karts, mountain biking, zip lines, everything. It's going to be a blast. Skateboarding, Aaron Beamish, our executive pastor, is going to be shredding uh, the, the skate park so we can watch that, and then uh, we'll take him to the hospital and get him back here safe afterwards. It's just going to be a great time, so make sure you jump in with us on that. Uh, men's morning Bible study. We just started a new men's Bible study on Thursday mornings at 6.30 with me and the group of guys. We had 26 guys actually for our first time gathering. It was just a great time gathering together. Um, our first four weeks, we are looking at a series called A Dude's Guide to Manhood. And this week in particular, it will be a guy and his family is what we're gonna be looking at. So join us this Thursday, 6.30 in the morning. Uh, milestone program, parent-child dedication is coming up. So if you have a baby that you would like to be dedicated and get a, be a part of our Heritage Milestones program, please make sure that you do what? Uh, it doesn't say. Are they signing up online? Anyone know? Brent. Online, heritagefellowship.net, or that's Pastor Brent, our children's pastor. You can go grab him right there as well. That'd be awesome. Finally, high school, dating games for nine through two. What are we doing with our high school kids? Dating games? I guess we just hook them up, right? I don't know. Um, <laughs> All right, whatever. No single lonely kids in our church, praise God. Um, (laughs) $10 includes games, activities, a dessert, and apparently a date. So uh, um, you might want to jump in on that. That's coming up on February 12th. Is that all? This thing's two-sided. That's all. All right, sweet. Ephesians 5 is where we're going to be this morning. Ephesians chapter five, and I want to apologize in advance. I'm fighting a horrible cold. Um, I've just been coughing and hacking all week long. I'm going to try to remember to hit the mute button from time to time so I can like that, Um, but we'll see. Hopefully I don't scare you to death with a uh, loud cough. That thing's gnarly. Anyone else dealing with that right now? There's a lot of us around here, right? Um, There's hand sanitizer, I think, on the walls as you're leaving. You might want to Take advantage of that. Ephesians 5 is where we're going to be. And let's open up in a word of prayer, shall we? Yes, the jersey's still on. There's a point to it later. I feel the judgment. God, we just come before you right now and ask for your grace in this time, Lord, as we open up your word. We want to seek your will, your word, your understanding. Lord, we want wisdom that comes from you. Lord, we want to learn more about you. We want to be drawn closer to you. And Lord, for all those things to happen, Lord, we need to have an experience with your Holy Spirit this morning. Uh, There's nothing I could say or teach that in and of itself would benefit anyone or has the power to change or affect any of our lives. Lord, only your Spirit can awaken your word in our hearts. So we invite you in, Spirit. And we ask, God, that you would just be our teacher, our leader, our guide, and our Lord this morning. God, may we be bowed before your word this morning um, in humble, uh, Lord, submission to you and your will. 
Uh, Lord, may you take away pride or self-will or self-righteousness or anything that would prevent us from receiving what you have for your church this morning. And God, may you be honored and your people be blessed by this time of worship as we open your word. So Lord, as we always pray, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Oh, my King, my rock, my redeemer in Jesus name. And the church says, amen. Amen. Well, we're back to Ephesians. We haven't been here since November, so it's great to get back in the book of Ephesians. We call it the book of Ephesians. That's really a bad way of calling it. It's, it's really a letter. We tend to treat the books of the Bible, and we refer to them as books of the Bible, we tend to treat them as books. And if you were writing a book about a certain topic, you would be pretty careful to do a ton of research and to be really comprehensive about the different subjects that you're teaching. But this isn't necessarily the case. Let me give you an example. A little later in our text today, we're going to read through a list. Paul's going to be speaking to the people of Ephesians, and he's going to talk about these sins that are not proper, and that those who continue in unrepentant practice of them are not inheriting the kingdom of God. And so he's going to say a little bit later on, don't let there be filthiness or foolish talk, sexual immorality and impurity, covetousness. And there's going to be this list of things, and he's going to say, as he concludes there, that those who practice them have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Well, our approach sometimes to these is that these are books. Therefore, Paul was writing a book, a treatise, and he's putting together a list. And we need to recognize that these things are issues. And so we approach it and go, so as long as I don't do that, 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 and that, I'm good. But that's not the case. Um, in fact, if we were to make a list, the list would be much longer than what Paul's going to be sharing here. What Paul's doing is he's writing a letter. This is a personal letter. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, written by and breathed out by God, no doubt, but using the person of Paul and the people of Ephesus, a church he had planted, people he loves and pastors as the way of bringing that word to life for all of us. So it flows through genuine relationships between genuine people, real people in a real place and time. And so Paul's writing this letter to a group of people that he dearly loves and he's encouraging them and how to live this thing that we call the Christian life. He's encouraging a church that, that is starting to get some of the basics and he wants to see them grow. He wants to see them move forward. He wants to see them succeed and do well. And so while it may not be a point by point total treatise in all these different things, it is a letter meant to touch, move, educate, and, and invoke even some sort of emotional reaction even in some areas because there's a genuine love and there's also genuine descriptions that should invoke awe in us as we read these things. And that's what Paul's been doing really from the very beginning of the letter. He starts with awe. That's what he does. And so we haven't been here for two months, so give me just a moment, if you will, to kind of refresh our memory what's going on because context matters. In chapter one, Paul introduces, it's one of the greatest chapters in the book of the Bible with regards to doctrine. Paul introduces this incredible truth of what we have in Christ. He teaches us in Ephesians one that we have been chosen that we have been adopted, that we have been rescued, that we've been included into the very plan of God through the ages, and that we have been promised an inheritance in eternity with him. It's this incredible, it's, it's gushing really. It's Paul going, guys, do you realize what we have in God? We have been chosen, we've been adopted, we've been, oh, God is good. And that's the idea. He's leading into worship as he encourages the people of Ephesians to look back and understand what God has done for them. 
And then in chapter two, he just keeps going and it just keeps getting better because he talks about how is all this possible? Like how can we receive these amazing things? How is that even possible? And he says, it's not something we earn. It's not something we fight for, stand in line for, that we go achieve. It's not a reward that's given. It's not a trophy after a great performance. It is something that is given strictly and totally by grace through faith. It is a gift of God, not the works of men. It is something that God in his goodness just gives to those who love him. It's an incredibly beautiful doctrine, grace through faith, not works. And then in chapter three, he goes into the fact that the gospel is this mystery that has been revealed to us through the love of Jesus Christ. Brings it back even to a more personal nature that that we as followers who have been saved by Christ, that this mystery's been revealed to us through Christ and that we're now ministers of that same ministry. And then the book of Ephesians shifts. It goes away from understanding who we are, what we've received, what Christ has done, and then it moves into the therefores. Because of what Christ has done, therefore, knowing all of these things, how does life look for the Christian? If we've been adopted by God, what does that look like? If we've been saved, chosen, predestined, destined for heaven, promised all of these things, changed by the Holy Spirit, not works, then what does life look like after that? How do those things play out? And the idea, which is really important, and it's huge in our text today, is this. You've got to know this when you read Ephesians. Every, and it's really not just Ephesians, I should say. It's the entirety of the Bible. Everything that we are to do in Scripture or to not do as Christians. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. All of those things which do exist in scripture, there are commands and imperatives in scripture, but all of them always flow out of our identity in Christ, not before. Never does it say, do these things so that you may be a child of God. And what we're going to see in this very text today, it's, hey, you are a child of God, therefore. This is really important. This is why it's the idea of gospel-centered ministry, because you can teach someone to behave in such a way. Like, this is what Christians do. Like, be good for goodness sake, because these things are good and these things are bad. So we don't do these and we do do these. And so people can go, okay, so I do this stuff, therefore I'm a Christian. You can teach someone to live like a Christian having never had Jesus at all. And, and then the saddest part of that is that those who do that find out that only lasts for so long. Because we can't pull that off. But that the actual power to live as Christians comes from as a byproduct of the fact that we have been saved by Jesus and empowered by his spirit. So you can't get the do this and don't do this in front of this is who you are in Jesus. You've you got to be saved before you can live like you're saved. Amen? And so this is what Paul's doing throughout the book of Ephesians. And so the section we're in now, we're getting into some of those imperatives. Do this, don't do this. This is what you do. This is what you don't do. You better never do this. Some of those kind of things. But in every case, as you'll see today, and in every case biblically, we've got to know all the commands of Scripture, all the imperatives to live the Christian life flow out of the reality that we have by grace been saved by Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And we dare never forget that the works that we do and our obedience to these command is not what makes us Christian. Amen, church? No, say amen like you understand what I'm saying. Like, amen, church? 
The things we do and don't do do not make us Christian, nor do they define us as Christian. They are a byproduct of the life of a converted Christian. Hugely important. And so this is what we're going to be talking about this morning. And we get into chapter 5, and this is another one of those areas where we take something that's a letter and we turn it into a book, and it makes it a little bit harder sometimes to understand. Because some of you guys know this, you've been tracking with us for a while, you do, that, that here in the Bible, these, these numbers that you guys see as you're reading through, chapter this, verse this, all those little numbers and, and things that are in there, those are all given to us by biblical scholars or interpreters, and they're given to us to help us break down scripture, break it into little things, and help us to understand it better. And in most cases, it's very helpful, it's very beneficial, and it's good. Today's not one of those cases. Because you would think, okay, Paul is writing this letter and he writes chapter four, then and then he gets to the end as Christ forgave you, period. Now, new paragraph, I wanna talk about something new, chapter five, and you go into the next thing, but that's not the case. Because we know this for a fact, because what's the first word in chapter five? Yell it out to me. Therefore. So it's a continuation of something that he's been speaking already before, but let's read it and then we'll find that part. Verse one says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. This is the section we're looking at today. But to understand all the things that we're talking about, we need to know he's saying, therefore. So what is the therefore, therefore? What's the thing he's connecting to that he's saying, because of this, then do this? Well, really the, the subject, if you will, is in chapter four. If you'll look just back a few verses, look at verse 22. So again, coming out of this grand description of the things Christ has done and who we are in Christ, Paul says in chapter four, verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the continuing thought that's really gonna be pervasive throughout the rest of the book of Ephesians. The idea is because of what Christ has done, you've been changed. When Christ chose you, selected you, saved you, rescued you, put his Holy Spirit in you, you are now different. The Bible says you're a new creation. The Bible says you've been born again. That old life is over. A new life has begun and it looks different than the last life. And so he uses this phrase that you put off the old and you put on the new. So everything we're seeing as we go through the rest of the book of Ephesians is basically a description of what this new self looks like, always tied to the fact that we've been saved. Do you see the importance there? You, you can't tell someone to be a new self if they're not yet a new self. 
So to tell someone to live a new life when they're still the old person doesn't work. So throughout the passage, you're going to see, this is what you do because you have been changed. And so here we have this idea, the idea that we have this new life in Christ. And he starts off with a gigantic statement. Therefore, because you've been saved, church, because of what Christ has done for you, because Christ lived that perfect life, died for your sins, rose from the grave, triumphed over sin, ascended into heaven, and has given you this grace, this salvation by grace, despite whether the, you don't, the fact that you don't deserve it. This gift's been given you. You've been changed. Therefore, what's, what does he say? Imitate God. <laughs> okay, Paul, thanks. That's all? Anything else? No, just do that. Oh, Steve, are you kidding me? Imitate God? That's a giant statement. Imagine going up to a brand new believer who's just gotten saved and they're just like, man, I just I love the Lord. I can't believe he saved me. So what do I do now? Just imitate God in everything you do. Just be like God. Well, if you've been reading the whole Bible, you understand there's a lot of challenges with that. That's a pretty big deal, right? But the idea is this. We all are born to imitate something. Let me ask you, think about when you were young. Who were your heroes? Who were your idols when you were young, when you were growing up? Uh, I'm going to date myself big time, but don't worry, older, older folk like me. It's coming back around in September. I'll explain. Uh, my hero at one point growing up when I was a kid was a guy named Steve Austin. Yeah, so there's some others in here, right? Remember this? The $6 million man, Steve Austin. Injured in a terrible parachuting accident, if I remember correctly, but we can rebuild him. We have the technology. Remember that? And so they built half of him out of robot stuff, which I thought was weird. I guess he landed on his side. But they did like, remember, it's like one arm and one leg and one eye. But still, man, the dude was awesome. Took on Bigfoot once. Remember that? Beat up Bigfoot. I mean, it was amazing. I, I honestly thought we would be bionic by this point in history. I thought there'd be a lot more bionic people, but apparently not. Um, I wish Peyton Manning was in that neck, but we'll see a little later today. Um, the $6 million man, you want some good news about this? It's coming back. I just discovered that, no kidding, that in September of 2017, they're starting production with Marky Mark Wahlberg playing Steve Austin in the movie version. But get this, this is awesome, and I'm not making this up. You can Google it. it you know, there's, it's inflation. So he's now the $6 billion man, not the $6 million man. Well, hey, healthcare costs have gone up, have they not? So it's a little more expensive. We still have the technology. It's just going to cost us a little more, but we can rebuild him. So that's coming up. Can't wait. Comes out next year. Anyway, so I, I wanted to be the $6 million man. And so when I was in third grade, I went to this Christian school, Merriman Avenue Baptist School, and I started signing Steve on all my homework assignments when I would turn it in to my teachers. And my teachers had to call my parents. were like, can you do something with this guy? Which I'm sure they were like, are you kidding? We try. But, um, but I did. I wanted to be him, so I wanted to imitate him. And so you're out in the backyard, right, as a kid, pretending to be him. You're like running, going, ch -ch 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 -ch. young people have no idea what that means. You'll know next year. Ch -ch -ch -ch. Like we do all that kind of stuff. And that's who I wanted to be, was Steve Austin. Well, I matured some. I grew a little. In high school, it wasn't Steve Austin anymore. It was Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan. I mean, 
Tar Heel from North Carolina. Air Jordan comes out, man, I wanted the shoes. I want, do you guys remember the black shirt that had like the net tank top part that went on the outside, the Air Jordan gear? Had all that stuff, man, playing basketball. I even started doing this. I'd shoot a free throw and I'd be like, I remember that, he would stick his tongue out when he would play. But I'm watching Michael Jordan and he was the best ever. He was the best ever. And I would watch him and I'm like, I want to do what he does. I want to be like him. I wish I could shoot, dunk, dribble, all that stuff. I want to be like him. I want to be, I want to be like Mike. Remember that? Remember that? A lot of people. That was what, Gatorade, I think? I can't remember. And so that's what we would do. If we get the shoes, we'll be able to dunk like him. We get the shirt, man. We'll be able to play like him. We'll get respect on the court. And that's what we did. Well, today, well, there's going to be tons of people everywhere that are going to do this, right? People are going to sport the Peyton Manning jerseys or the Cam Newton jerseys or whatever the case may be. They're going to put on all the gear of their heroes and they're going to watch the game and there's going to be a whole new generation of kids even that are going to watch this game and they're just going to be so mesmerized by the things the players are doing on the field that they're going to create a whole new generation of idols. And I want to be like him. Like that seems to me what would be the best life in the world. If I'm an athlete like that, look how many people would cheer for me. If I'm an athlete like that, look how I get to win the trophy. If I get to do all this stuff, man, I want to be like him. And a whole generation of kids even today are going to start doing what we've all always done because we all do this. And this is what we do. Whatever you idolize, you'll start to mimic that you'll start to imitate that thing. The musicians you like, you wanna sing like them. The, the, the musicians or the celebrities where you wanna dress like them. The athletes you like, you wanna play like them and you'll start doing whatever you can. You'll start trying to talk like them, act like them, dress like them, look like them. We all do this. Young people, listen, there's all these mantras going around now. There's all these people today, they'll say things like, hey, listen, you just be yourself. Be an original, be the best you that you can be, and they'll celebrate individuality, right? But young people, listen, it's garbage, it's fake, it's not true, because the same people that would tell you to do that will totally exclude you if you don't look like them. They will say you need to be like this. Be whoever you want. Okay, then I want to be a Christian. Oh, not here. Can't be like, no, not here. And this is what we do. We all find people that we want to imitate and mimic and we look like them. We dress like them. We act like them. We are born to mimic. This is what we do. Now in Ephesus, the place where Paul's writing to, they had two huge idols that was absolutely controlling who they were and the way they acted. The first one was Artemis or the the Roman equivalent would be the goddess Diana. There was this huge temple. Can we put this picture up? Huge temple there. This is what it would have looked like. This is kind of an artist representation. It's considered one of the wonders of the world. This gigantic temple dedicated to Artemis or Diana, the goddess of the hunt or the goddess of fertility, which is a weird combination, hunting and sex. But okay, some of the guys loved it. So uh, if you take it, go to the next picture. You can still, uh, we're going to be going there next year and uh, doing a Apostle Paul trip as a church. So start saving your money right now, but we will go here, we will stand there, and you will see the very temple that dominated in many ways the the skyline, if you will, of Ephesus. 
And so here in this temple, this goddess Artemis, Diana, was worshipped, and she's this goddess of fertility, especially in the culture in Ephesus. They referred to her as the multi-breasted one. And she was believed to be the one who was in charge of everything from reproduction to fertility to just plain good fortune, as if like you're a, a farmer and you want your crops to reproduce and to grow, to be fertile, then this was the goddess that you would go to. And so what they would do in this temple is they would take temple prostitutes, sometimes young girls who were virgins, wouldn't allow them to go marry anyone until they had served a term of time in the temple. And they would have these celebrations, which were basically just big, disgusting orgies. And the people would come in. And so if you were a person who worshiped Artemis, in the year ahead, you wanted to do well. You wanted to have a prosperous year. You wanted good fortune. And so you would go and engage in these acts with these temple prostitutes as a way of earning. They, they literally believed it joined you to this goddess and it earned you good favor in the year or month or whatever the time frame was to come. And as a result, as you might imagine, if that's the kind of worship you have, sexual immorality goes rampant. So here you have this, this the goddess of sex and, and all these things. And so what ends up happening? This is the idol that we'll elevate. And therefore, this is what the culture started to look like. The culture became completely rampant with all kinds of forms of sexual immorality. And they would pursue it from her because that was also a way that they gained the next of their idols. The second of their idols was wealth. Ephesus was a port city and it was a place that people came to because of its trade, desiring riches, desiring wealth. It was built, there was a river that would allow them to ship things far up into the land. They could get to the sea. It was a very advantageous, strategic city. And you guys know, when you have ports, I mean, look at cities like San Francisco, Seattle, and the like. You have a big port, you're going to have a prosperous city. Because trade's going to go through that. So people would come here chasing wealth and chasing this kind of immoral lifestyle. So you, you'd have people that would go participate in an, a sexually immoral lifestyle as a way of getting good favor so that they could also receive in the year ahead the wealth that they also coveted and idolized. It's always been tied together, hasn't it? So these are the two. Now, is that applicable to our day and age at all? I mean, if there's two bigger idols than money and sex in our culture, I don't know what they are. And the two are married together, aren't they? I mean, they're both forms of power. They're both ways of, I will take what I want from this person. I'm after what I want. I don't really care so much about who that other person, especially as Paul refers to it later, greed. I'm gonna take, take, take. And then you're gonna see in the game today, the commercials that people have spent millions and millions of dollars on, watch and see how many of them are marrying greed and sex. They're gonna use sex and sensuality to get the other thing that they want, just like the Ephesians people did. This has gone on forever. This is the case even today. And so Paul is writing to the church, to the already saved people of God, and he's saying, church, listen, don't be like them. Don't fall into that line of imitating and following what's going on in your culture. You're different. You're a new creation. You're a new being with a new nature. You imitate God. Don't be like the people around you. And there's incredible, even practical wisdom as to why we should desire to do such a thing. And let me give you just a couple. For example, number one, if you're taking notes, and I'm sure everyone is. Number one, 
only God can satisfy. Amen? Anybody in here, give me an amen if you've lived long enough to learn this lesson. Only God can satisfy. Amen? 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 Though we still go back, right? Get what happened in Ephesus, for example. Port city, making lots of money. There's a problem, though. The thing that made them a a hub for, for getting money and trade and all this was that river. But that river was killing them at the same time. Because that river not only provided them access to increase their trade, but it brought down river with it massive amounts of silt and debris and sediment. And so this is literally what happened historically in Ephesians. Over and over, the very harbor that they had based themselves on so that they could gain wealth and do trade began to fill more and more and more with sand and silt. The land was coming up and the water was being pushed back. So over and over and over, the people of the city went into that harbor and they would dredge it the best they can to keep shipping channels over. And four different times in the history of the city of Ephesus, they moved the whole city to get closer and closer to the water. Just up and moved. It's one of the reasons that the ruins in the city of Ephesus are so well preserved in many places. Like you go to Israel and you can see even in a building that there's different layers of construction. This was Jesus' time. This was the Roman era. You can even tell by looking at the stones when something was built. None of that happened in Ephesus because four times they moved the city and then eventually the city was completely abandoned because it no longer worked or existed. They couldn't survive anymore because the thing that they were built on, this money and this port and this hub no longer existed for them anymore. And so it never got rebuilt upon. The ruins are the same as they were back in the day. They're basically really well preserved because no one else wanted that land anymore. It all dried up on them. Like you can pursue these things all you want, but they will never ultimately satisfy you. You will one day be without every dime that you ever had. You're not taking it to heaven with you. It doesn't work like that. And the joy that we place on the value and joy that we place on so many of these different things, from sex to money, relationships, whatever it is, we put so much value on those things, but they will never ever hold up to the pressure we put on them, the expectations we have for them, and they will always let you down in the end. They will always let you down in the end. They will leave you totally dried up just like this. Only God is the one that says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And it's funny, it's a good reminder to the church. Remember, he's writing this to who? He's writing it to Christians. And he's saying, guys, don't do it. Don't go back there, because we do. We do. We get so easily distracted. We are, and God knows this, we are weak in our flesh. And so, so often we find ourselves returning to these same cisterns, as Jeremiah would say, that cannot hold water and putting our hope in things over and over that will always ultimately let us down. It is a good reminder to just to remind ourselves and for God to remind us, like, just don't. It's not going to happen. And people have been digging up those, those harbors, if you will. They've been going back to that same thing over and over and over and over. And sooner or later, you're going to get to a place where just like Ephesus, you're going to realize this thing is totally worthless to me. It will not provide what I've designed it to provide. It's not going to give me that which I sought it for. And you'll either realize this, repent and come to God, or you'll move on to the next thing, as so many people in that city did. Only God satisfies. Say that with me. 
only God satisfies. Number two, another reason why we should desire or it should just make sense to us why we would want to imitate God is this, because we have a different inheritance. This is what I mean. Take a look at verse five. It's a heavy sentence right here. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now here's what religion did to that verse for most of us, uh, for a lot of our upbringing. We looked at this, instead of realizing that this is an issue that comes out of our identity in Christ, we tend to look at these things as a list of things like we can't be this and we can't be this and we can't be this. And so we read this list and we go, Man, if I'm sexually immoral or impure or if I'm a coveter, if I do any of this stuff, I have no inheritance. I'll never get to heaven because I have no inheritance in Christ. Now, there's a sense in which Paul would agree because Paul would say, if you are continually unrepentant, living in this kind of sin, if your life has never changed, you're not saved. Jesus is not just our punch ticket admission into heaven, but he also died that we might have a new nature, that he changes us, that we become different. Our desires change, our goals change. Not that we don't struggle and still fall back to those cisterns from time to time, but someone who's genuinely been changed by the Holy Spirit is gonna feel the conviction that the Holy Spirit brings when we fall into those sins is not gonna desire to be there anymore. Basically, you're gonna be chased down by God who's saying, Jeff, what are you doing? That's not you. Dude, don't, don't do this, Jeff. You're different, you're changed. This is gonna hurt you. And so someone who is continuing in unrepentance and they're not experiencing any of this because they don't have the spirit in them that's doing that work, changing them into more and more like Christ. What Paul's saying here is he's speaking as he often does in many of his writings about the kingdom of God as a presently existing state as well. Not just something we inherit then, but something we're a part of today. And he's saying, listen, they're not saved. They're not headed to heaven and they're not part of the kingdom that you have right now. So why would you mimic them? Why would you imitate someone who doesn't have the inheritance you have, doesn't have the blessings you have? All of those things that he talks about in Ephesians 1 where he says, we already have every spiritual blessing under the heavenlies. He said, they have none of this. So why would you as a child of God who's been adopted into the kingdom and the family of the king of kings, why would you pursue this? This is like what the, what the writers would say, like a dog returning to its vomit. He said, look, this isn't worthy of you mimicking. This isn't worthy of you chasing. So, so don't do it. I, I love the way he talks about it in the book of Colossians. Colossians is kind of a parallel. It's almost like a commentary to the book of Ephesians. And in Colossians 1, he says this. Can we put the text up? He says, now may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance with patience, with joy. Give thanks to the father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You see the gospel there? This is the identity part. Man, be thankful. Think about what God has done. He has qualified you to receive inheritance in God. He has strengthened you. He's empowered you. And then look what he says. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Hey, let, let me use football terms. 
He took you out of Cleveland and he put you in Denver or Carolina. I'm serious though, think about it. Nobody today is putting on a Cleveland Browns jersey and going out to imitate Johnny Menzel. Nobody. Because in, in sports analogy still, he's not worth your follow. That team's not worth your follow. Here we have the champions. Here we have something to look at, something to desire, something to watch. And so people are going to put the jerseys on and they're going to want to be like these guys, but no one's going to put on the Cleveland Brown jersey. Look, this is the reality of our existence. Like we have been saved and brought out of a domain of darkness, a, a level of perversion and sin and death that we have no idea how bad it really is. But God, by his grace, has pulled us out of that, has saved us, has washed us, and has now put us into the domain of light. He has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And he's saying, put that jersey on. Don't, why in the world, when you're living in a palace, would you want to go back to the pig pen? Don't do it. It doesn't even make sense. Know who you are, but notice what he does. He's not saying, better do this. No, he's reminding them over and over. Jeff, you live in a palace, man. Stay out of the shack. This is what God has done in your life. Don't go back to this dead, rotting corpse anymore, man. Reckon the old man dead. It's over. God's changed you. Don't follow that anymore. And while we love people who don't have Jesus in their life, while we want to share the gospel with and befriend and all those things, we're not following someone who's still in the domain of darkness. We're calling them out of it. I mean, people sometimes, all the time, they talk about Jesus and they'll say, man, Jesus, he just hung out with sinners. Therefore, I'm gonna go hang out with the sinners. And so they'll go bar hopping just like everyone else or they might go to strip clubs just like anyone else or just behave in any, any way they want and they'll use Jesus as the example. Like Jesus hung out with sinners. If you read with honesty, not trying to justify your own life, but read what Jesus did, he wasn't going in to hang out in their filth. He was calling dying people out of their filth and showing them love along the way. And that's what we're called to do. So, so don't, don't follow Cleveland, follow Denver, follow Carolina. Did I go too far with that? Probably so. Probably so. I'm saying that as Denver's quarterback is also rotting, decaying, and falling apart. But anyway, but that's the idea. Look, you've been brought out of the domain of darkness. You have been placed in the light. And the more that we realize who we really are in Christ, the less likely we'll be to ever go back to some of this stuff. Our identity matters. We've got to know these things. And then number three is still this idea of identity, but he calls it out specifically in verse one. Therefore, be imitators of God as what? Beloved children. Like, look, you're, you're not just everybody else. Oh, but they're all doing this and our culture does this and it's okay everywhere else. We can approve this kind of lifestyle and we can approve all these things and that's just where we are. That's our culture, that's what we're doing. But listen, you are not part of the culture anymore if you've been saved by Jesus Christ. You're part of a totally different kingdom. So it doesn't matter what everyone else decides. That's not who you are anymore. You've been changed. And look what he says in verse three. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. And look what he says, as is proper among saints. Now again, let's go back to what religion does to a verse like this. It's not proper for you to live this way. 
because we are good. We only do good things. Christians are good people. We are proper, and that's what we tend to associate that word proper with in that setting. Christians are proper. We don't tell dirty jokes. We don't talk a certain way. We don't do certain things. We're proper. We're respectable. We're honorable people. Well, I would hope that Christians are, but that's not what it's talking about. What he's saying is there's a type of behavior that fits your identity and a type that's not. That's what proper means. It means suitable, fitting, appropriate. So he's not saying be good for goodness sake. These are the appropriate things that you do, so go do them, therefore you'll be a good Christian. No, he's saying you are a Christian, so there's certain things in your life that just fit and certain things that don't. If you saw a multi-billionaire driving a beat up, broke down car that's breaking up or breaking down every time he tries to drive to work, you would look at that and be like, have you seen your bank account in the last, I don't know, ever? Like, why do you keep driving a Yugo? You know we've been making fun of those for decades. They don't even hardly exist anymore. And you're driving a Yugo. What's the matter with you? Don't you know who you are? You could afford this. Remember when Tiger Woods was doing Buick commercials? You guys remember that? Did anyone actually believe Tiger Woods drove a Buick? Anyone? Of course not. And if you saw Tiger Woods drive a Buick, you would think it doesn't fit. You're the most famous athlete in the world today. Why are you driving the car that I can drive? And that's the same argument. Why would we do what everybody else does? Because we're different. We are children of Jesus, of God. We are children of the King of Kings. We are joint heirs with Jesus. And so there are things about the way we carry ourselves. It's not snottiness. It's not rudeness. It's not self-righteousness. It's Jesus' righteousness. And so you carry yourself in a way that just is appropriate with what your identity actually is. But again, if you stress the actions and the behavior before someone's actually become a Christian, you're telling them to fake it. You're telling them to pretend to be something they're not. And you can teach someone to live like a Christian without ever having Christ. That's why it all flows out of the gospel, amen? And then the last thing is this. We were made to reflect God. That's why we were designed. We were created to reflect God. Like I said, everyone imitates somebody. We were made, though, to reflect God. That's why it's human nature to look around and find someone else that you latch onto and go, I want to be like this. It's human nature because it was designed in us. The Bible teaches us that we were made in God's image. We were made to reflect something of God. That means literally to imitate or to mimic. And Paul brings it up again. We saw in Ephesians 4, 24, he said, so put on the new self, what? Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now it's debated, people, theologians debate. What does that mean, image of God? What exactly is he talking about? And there's a lot of things that people argue about, but we know for sure we are clearly in the creation account and just in common sense, we're different than animals, right? We don't have to be controlled by our passions. We don't have to be controlled by our instincts. We've been made to be moral beings that can reason between right and wrong, good and bad, light and dark. And this is what God has designed us to do, to live this way that we're reflecting, created to reflect God. So, but to be more specific, let's talk about that though. If we're reflecting God, what does that look like? Well, you gotta understand, reflect, to mirror, to mimic, If you're standing before a mirror, you can reflect a perfect representation of who you are in almost every way, except one big one, right? It's two-dimensional. 
It might look exactly like you. It might move as you move. It might, all those things, but it is a two-dimensional inanimate object. So as much as it looks like you, it cannot do all the things you can do, correct? And the same is true for God. There's two different categories that, that uh, 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 theologians, smart people, will say, here are the two areas. If you break down all the different attributes of God, like what is God like? Well, there, there's two different categories. There are the communicable attributes and the incommunicable attributes. So think of it in terms of diseases. If you have a communicable disease, you have a disease that can be transmitted, it can be caught, can be passed on. Examples would be flus, viruses, HIV, Ebola, things like that. Being around someone who has a communicable disease means you can receive and they can transmit that to you. But someone who has an incommunicable disease, that's not the case. That'd be things like heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's. I mean, they might exist in someone's DNA, but it's not something that can be transmitted to the next person from one person to the other. And the same is true for God. So there are some attributes of God that are incommunicable that only he has. For example, only God can save and change people. Anyone else like me learned that the hard way over many years? Tried to be God? tried to like save people and fight for people and be the Holy Spirit in their life that's like wanting to fix them and change them and rescue them. And then you find out what? God's a lot more strong and more patient and more powerful than me because I can't pull this off. I'm exhausted, frustrated, and constantly disappointed. Well, God's never gonna allow you to be God in someone else's life if they're genuinely seeking God. He's gonna have to get you out of the way because the point's him. And so we can't save people. We are not omnipotent. We do not have all power. We can't change people. All we can do is point them to the one who can and trust the Holy Spirit, trust God to do that work in their life. To try to be God is exhausting and it will never work. Amen, those of you that have been there like me? Amen. Amen. Um, what about this? Only God is righteous. So when we become self-righteous, Instead of relying on the righteousness of Christ to save us, when we, when we go, look at what I do. Look how many Bible verses I've learned. Look how much church I attend. Look how holy I am because I don't do this, 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 this. And I do all this, this, this. When we become self-righteous, you know, we, you know what happens? We become a distorted image of God. In, in the same way that a mirror might give a really clear picture of you, you stand in front of a carnival or a funhouse mirror, or you look in water that's rippled, you'll see a reflection it might kind of look like it, but it's distorted. It's not accurate and it's not real. And so when we as the church put on self-righteousness as this is what God's like, we, God is proud, God is perfect and holy like we, and we, you start to take on some of those incommunicable attributes instead of humbling yourself and trusting in the righteousness of Christ, you are no longer projecting to the world around you a clear image of who God is. It's not an imitation of God, it's a false, a distorted image. And that's where you have legalistic churches that become very, we do this and we don't do this and they pound those things home and you put your identity in that and that's why half the world thinks God's always angry because that's what ends up getting projected to people out there. It's a distorted image of who God is. Uh, here's another one. Only God is the righteous judge of sin. Now we're to discern for things like everything from church discipline to who we're gonna interact with, who we're gonna marry. We're to discern and judge someone by their fruit, but we are not the judge of sin. We are not the ones who have the power to condemn someone else for their sin. 
But many people have taken that on. I mean, the, the classic example in our day and age is Westboro Baptist Church, if that's the name, I forget the name, that loves to go protest any kind of funeral. And their website, remember, is godhatesfags.com. That's their church website address. And they live to be this sort of spiritual spotlight. They would take a text where Jesus says, you're the light of the world. And they're like, yes, spotlight, boom, look what you're doing, man. I got it right here. Oh, and look at that one right there. And like this spotlight just going around to point out everyone else's failures. That's not what we're to be. The text light of the world goes on to say, so that they might see your good works and glorify God in heaven. That light is supposed to be shining on us so that the world sees how we serve God, how God is working through us, and that they would look at us and be like, clearly that's not Jeff. Clearly the Lord's doing something. I think I wanna worship him. That's the idea. But to promote anything else other than that, you give a distorted image, an inaccurate imitation of who God is to the world around us. So what, what can we do? What are the communicable attributes of God that we can express to the world around us? Wisdom, mercy, love, patience, forgiveness, kindness, justice. These are even the things that he's laying out as we go through the text. He says in verse 32 of chapter four, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and what? Walk in, no one's reading the verse. Try this again, verse two, Ephesians five, and walk in love, love. This is a huge call to the people of God that we imitate God as we walk in Christ-like love with one another and express that love to the world around us. Now, does that mean that we turn a blind eye to sin? No. Someone that loves someone that is continuing in unrepentant sin would care for them enough to say, I I just don't wanna see you get hurt. I wanna, I wanna throw that arm around you. I wanna pull you out of that mire. I want to walk with you in repentance and restoration, not shining a light on them and going, get it together. It's a completely different approach and a completely different image of who Christ is. Someone who's walking in love will not engage in sexual immorality because they know how damaging it is to the other people involved. They understand it's just taking Someone walking in love will not be consumed by greed. They'll instead want to be like Christ and be someone who humbles themselves and gives. Someone walking in love is going to give that accurate reflection, imitation of Christ, of God in the world around us. This is what we're called to do. So imitate God, church. Well, it's not that easy, is it? It's a little harder than that, right? Because we have this wrestling match, don't we? We still have that, that old man creeping up every once in a while. We still have a sinful nature that we're dealing with. It's not as easy as just flipping a switch and then we just love everybody all the time and we never get frustrated again and we never get tempted by greed and we never get tempted by lust. It's not that easy. But, but here's some things I think that we can see even from our text and understand just quickly how we can actually have a, a shot at actually doing what Paul's calling us to do. And understand, He's calling us to do it. it. It is a command of scripture. It's something that we as Christians need to seek to do. Amen? So how do we do this? Number one, I've said it over and over and over. Well, we're gonna start here again. You gotta be his kid if you're gonna live as his kid. You've gotta be saved. 
You cannot pull this off on your own if you are not a Christian. You don't have the Holy Spirit in you. That's the power to live this out. You don't have the ability to do this. All that change has to start within. It's not outward actions that promote inner change. It's inner change that results in outward actions. And so you can't get the cart before the horse. You've got to be saved. And so if you don't know whether you are or not, that's huge and a great place to be. To humble yourself to that point where you're like, man, I don't don't know. Man, then come and receive the gift of grace that Jesus Christ has paid the way for. It's free. He died for you to receive it. And God is good. He loves you and he desires that all be saved. But you gotta be saved before you can live like a Christian. Amen? Number two is this. We have to know him. And this is through his word. How best, if we're called to imitate God, then we need to know something about God if we're able to imitate him, correct? And the Bible is not history books. The Bible is the story of God and his redemptive plan for all of mankind. And so as we read this, we learn more and more about who God is about what God's attributes are. What are the things that God desires to show to the world? And it's not just New Testament stuff. It's in the Old Testament too. He called Israel to bless people. When he showed himself to Moses, he said, I'm forgiving and loving. This is who God is. And so if you're a Christian, look, you've got to be in the word. You've got to be all the time. You will imitate that which you idolize. That thing that you put before you is what you're going to imitate. And so you can either imitate God's world or we can keep the TVs on 24-7 and imitate the things that we see there or whatever the case may be. But Christian, man, be people of the book. Amen? Number three, it's not just beholding the book, but we behold Christ. A mirror won't reflect something that it's not turned to. And the ultimate revelation of God's goodness and person is Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus did, by the way. Take a look at this. Look at verse 18 of John 5. We've got the text here. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Think about what he's saying. Jesus is saying, I imitate the father. I see what God is doing in the world around me. Think about Jesus. You you know, we read the Bible sometimes and and we go, oh, I'm gonna turn to the Psalms for my morning devotions and see what God's will for my life might have been. But but think about Jesus is reading this and and he would later teach and tells everyone like that all these things in the Old Testament were speaking of him. So when Jesus would read in the Old Testament that this is what the son is to do, he would say, then that's God's will for my life. And Jesus was obedient to everything that God showed him. So as he would read these things and he would see himself in the text, that's what Christ did. And he says, I only do what I see the Father doing. God shows me what he's doing and that's what I do. I imitate the Father. And we don't just get saved into some random, like we're saved, we're free, and now we'll just live until the day. But Christ doesn't just save us, but those who are changed by the word of God, those who have been saved into the kingdom of God, follow Jesus. 
This is the example that's been set forth in us. We follow him. And that's why Paul says it at the very first verse right here. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. How? As Christ loved us. So as we behold Jesus, we see a very clear example in the scriptures that Jesus is the manifestation of God to us. So as we see Jesus, so too should we seek to be. It's, it's so worn out and, and over-commercialized that we laugh at it, but there is absolute value in the phrase, what would Jesus do? There is absolute value in that phrase. And then finally, yield to the Holy Spirit. It was never the intent of God that once we get saved, we go live for him. That's gonna sound controversial, but hear me out. It was never the intent of Jesus that he save you so that you can now go live for him. The intent was he has saved us so that he might live through you. That's different. Because if it's by grace, not works that we're saved, then why in the world would we then go, now that I'm a Christian, I have to resort to self-effort and start doing this, 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 when none of those things could have mattered to save us in the first place. Why would he do that? That would be incredibly confusing. Instead, what God says is, Jesus himself, did he not say this to the disciples? Hey, after I leave, a helper's going to come. And you're gonna do more even than I've done as the church spreads. God is sending you a helper. And so when you get saved, God puts his Holy Spirit inside you that the power of God might live through you. And that means we have to learn to yield to the Spirit and we need to learn to understand when the Spirit is prompting us and we need to resist and die to self over and over. There's so many scriptures that back this up. Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Look at 2 Corinthians 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. So what? Look, so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our bodies. It's the life of Christ being lived out of us from that changed nature that is inside us. Here's a long one. Remember I told you, we just talked about the list. Man, we do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. Check this one out in 1 Thessalonians. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. I've I've already failed. Is anyone else already out, verse right out out the gate? See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Always seek to do good to one another. Now everyone's for sure out. And to everyone, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And then look what he says. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May God change you, set you apart completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then look at this. 
he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. That whole list, who's gonna do it? I can't do it, can you do it? Can anyone do it? And he says, listen, God is faithful. God is faithful. God is the one changing you. God is the doing work. He will surely do it. That sound you hear now is all the Christian in this room going, oh, thank goodness. The burden of religion, I have to, I have to, I have to. When he says, will you just look at me, seek me, submit to the spirit and let me have control of your life. I will do these things in you. And you will fail, but then you'll remember how forgiving and loving I am. And there's gonna come a day when you're gonna look back and go, that thing I thought I would never get out of is, wow, it's in my rear view mirror now. That road I thought I would never get off of, I'm, I'm, I'm onto a different road. I'm not, I'm not perfect yet, we won't be perfect until we're with Jesus in person, but, but something changed. And I'm not like this anymore. I'm telling you right now, anyone that's ever got to that point, when they look back, nobody ever says, I did it. They never say that. They say, God, by his grace, got me through it. That's what they say. We say this all the time. God raises children different than we do. We raise our kids to be independent, but God raises children to depend on him. And so some of us, man, we need the opportunity, the, the last verse, just so we can put it. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory for the other. In other words, as we behold Jesus, we are becoming like him. But then look what it says. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What is it that changes us? It's not us. It is the spirit of God at work in our life and bringing the life of Jesus to manifest in front of the world around us. It's the work of God. But we so easily drift back to the work. I gotta do this, I gotta do this, and I gotta do this because that's how we're wired. We're, we're, it's that false image of God that we can become something other than we are instead of depending on him. And so here's your opportunity just this morning. Today's a communion Sunday. We were to do communion this week and we normally do it in the worship before, but some of us need to do some soul work with the Lord this morning. And so we're gonna take opportunity. It's gonna be five to seven minutes and we're gonna be done, but it might be the most important five to seven minutes that you'll spend in who knows how long. If you don't know Jesus, you need Jesus. This is an opportunity. Don't even worry about communion and those other things. What you need to worry about is going before the Lord and saying, Lord, I'm sorry. I've sinned against you, I've fallen, and I need you to save me. Others of us in here are Christians, and we keep going back to that same old well. We keep trying to dredge out that same old port, and we go, I'm saved, I'm in the kingdom of God, and then these things take us away. Lust, money, relationships, pride, greed, whatever those things are, and we struggle, but the beauty of it is this. The communion is something that was given to us by Jesus. And he said, do this often in remembrance of me. In other words, he's saying, Jeff, remember, I did it. I took care of it. I succeeded everywhere you failed. And so I want you to do this often, Jeff, because you need to remind yourself over and over, it is me, not you. And then we have opportunity, even as worship ascends, to say, Lord, I need to repent from sins that I'm struggling with. I need, to, I need to repent from things that I've brought back on myself that are not fitting, they're not proper, if you will, with who I am in you. 
having these communion elements in my hand. I'm reminded of who I am and what you've done for me. And Lord, I, I need to now again put down these idols and Lord, submit to your Holy Spirit. And so I'm dismissing the brothers and sisters now to go get the elements of communion and bring them forth and serve them as we worship. But listen, this is heart check time. This is an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to do some surgery in our hearts. Will you submit to him? Will you be honest with him about the things he's prompting you on? Will you trust him that he only wants to lead you into better and better things? And will you give your life over to Christ that he might live out of you? Let's pray. God, we commit this time to you and I pray that your Holy Spirit would just move in this place this morning. Lord, your word says, Christ in us is the hope of glory. And so I pray that even in this time that people would be saved, lives transformed because your Holy Spirit is here and moving and powerful and changing the hearts and minds of men in this place. So may we just have the humility and the wisdom to submit to you. In Jesus' name. Savior, I come, quiet my soul. Remember Redemption's hell Your blood was spilled For my ransom Everything I once held dear I count it all cross where your love's born out bring me to my knees when I lay me down rid me myself I belong to you lead me lead me to Tempted and tried Human The Word became flesh Bore my sin and death Now you're risen Yeah In everything I want to
chance to stick a hand up nice and high and some of these guys will uh, make sure we don't want to leave can't leave anyone out of communion right would you stand with me let's pray together God in our hand we hold the reminder that you have given us Lord that everything has been paid for us God even as we talked about this morning Lord our own self efforts it falls so far short of the righteousness that's required to be in eternity with you. But Lord, in this, we're reminded, Lord, that we are depending not on ourselves, not on self-righteousness. That's a distorted view of who you are. But, but God, we are dependent totally on you. Thank you for being so gracious that you would provide for us. Thank you that you would see those of us who are in such need and that you would humble yourself and serve us in that way, that you would save us. God, thank you that you would pay the price for our sin. God, our sin is deserving of death, and yet you would take your perfect son and place him on the cross in our stead. God, we are so thankful. So as we eat of this bread, Lord, we are reminded that the old man in us is broken as well, that the chains to sin have been broken, that you paid the punishment that Satan has no more hold on us who are the children of God. And so, Lord, we celebrate and we humbly say thank you, Lord, for paying the price for us. And may you be honored and worshiped as we eat together. Let's eat. Lord, in this cup, we're reminded that it is the blood of your son that has washed us. That our sin wasn't just ignored, it was washed and paid for, and the cost was incredibly expensive. Lord, thank you that you poured your blood out for us. Thank you that you have washed us. Lord, thank you that somehow through the miracle of heaven, you were able to look at the likes of us and call us righteous, call us friends, call us sons. Lord, we celebrate. We are so thankful, Lord, that you have poured such love out on us. And so God, together we drink in worship and in honor and in gratitude for your grace, your mercy, and your forgiveness. Let us drink together. And now God, out of this reminder of who we are, that you have saved us, you have adopted us, and you have destined us for an inheritance in heaven, may we now, Lord, sing this last chorus together. Father, may it be spirit-infused worship from a genuine reality and changed heart within. May we worship you for you are worthy of our praise. Is he worthy, church? Let's sing to him now. Let's praise. <laughs> 